Well, let's take our Bibles and turn to the Old Testament book of Daniel. We're beginning a new series tonight on the book of Daniel. Uh, You'll find our reading tonight on page 737 of the Pew Bibles, page 737. Uh, This is our third evening sermon series in this church season, this church year. Uh, First of all, we had used the Apostles' Creed to understand our faith more deeply. Uh, We've looked at the book of Jonah and have thought about how we share our faith with a lost world. And tonight as we start, Daniel, we're going to be thinking about how we live out our faith in a way that is distinctive. So you can see that all three series are are in some way connected. The Apostles' Creed is about the content of our faith. Jonah, about sharing our faith with the world. Daniel, about living out our faith distinctively in the world. Daniel is a complicated book, uh, despite the fact that there are some well-known stories in it. Uh, We're coming to this series in quite a flexible way in that we might stop at chapter 7 or we might work through the whole book. It depends on how complicated I think it is because it gets fairly complicated uh, from chapter 7 onwards. We'll take it as it comes. But tonight we're reading Daniel chapter 1. It's page 737 on the Pew Bibles. And we're going to read this whole chapter together. Daniel chapter 1. This is God's word to us. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand and some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord, the king, who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. At the end of the ten days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were, they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. 
At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Amen. And we thank God for his word to us this evening. Well, let's take our Bibles and turn to the book of Daniel. We're starting this new series tonight. Uh, You'll find Daniel 1 on page 737 of the Pew Bibles. And as always, you'll find it helpful to have a Bible open in front of you as we think about this passage and about this story. Uh, There's an interesting genre of literature that goes by the name of alternative histories. It is exactly what you are imagining imagining it to be. There are books which imagine what life would be like if history had turned out differently from the way that it did. Uh, You've maybe read some of those sorts of books. In one novel, an author called Len Dayton imagines what if Adolf Hitler had focused all of his attention on invading Britain in 1940 and hadn't started a second front against Russia? There's a strong possibility that he would have made a successful assault and the result would be a very different face for Britain and Europe today. In all likelihood, we would have grown up in a repressive police state living in constant fear of the authorities. For some people in our world today, that is unfortunately their experience. We've been praying for them tonight in our prayers for others. For people in Afghanistan, in North Korea, life is very different. For people who have left Ukraine, life is very uncertain. Can you imagine what it's like to be exiled from home to a foreign city, to be alone and scared, to be a long way from familiar surroundings? How would you cope in such a place? What truths would you cling to? Would you remain faithful to your former identity or would you simply be absorbed into your new surroundings? The thing about that little imaginative exercise is that it isn't too far removed from our actual experience. As believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, as citizens of heaven, Christians live as aliens and strangers in a land that is not their own. Peter calls us sojourners and exiles in 1 Peter 2 verse 11. And that verse has perhaps seemed quite removed from our situation here in Northern Ireland. We have lived in a country that has been shaped and dominated by Christians for many years. We live in a part of our country that has been called the Bible Belt. When I lived at home in Uri, I always thought of Ballymena as the Bible Belt of Northern Ireland. But that is changing, and you can see that even as you look at your local area, as, our, as we look at our local area. Many of us sense a shift in the mentality of our culture, and that's leading us to being completely overwhelmed. Christians are no longer the majority, and our views are actually no longer considered acceptable or even expressible. People don't come to church anymore because it's no longer considered the right thing to do. The the wind has changed. The prevailing wind is no longer at the back of the sails of of professing Bible-believing Christians. The the wind appears to be blowing hard behind the forces of secularism. I've used this quote from Tim Keller before in church, but it's very perceptive 
about the church's situation at the moment. Keller said this, he said, we're entering a new era in which there is not only no social benefit to being a Christian, but an actual social cost. In many places, culture is becoming increasingly hostile toward faith and belief in God, truth, sin, and the afterlife are disappearing in more and more people. Now culture is producing people for whom Christianity is not only offensive, but incomprehensible. The thing about secularism is that it pushes back on what the Bible says about sexual ethics, about salvation, about education, about the role and the reach of the state, and about matters of public welfare. One person has said that we live in a culture which will have no truck with claims such as religious miracles or the existence of God. These are dismissed as the superstitious beliefs of a bygone primitive age of myth and bigotry. That's what our world thinks we're living in at the moment. A bygone age of myth and bigotry. So with that in mind, the question is, what does it look like to live as a Christian in a society that does not like what Christians believe, what, what Christians say, and how Christians live? Enter the book of Daniel. Daniel is a book written to God's Old Testament people when they were experiencing the brokenness and pain of life in exile far away from home. But for us as Christians living in the 21st century, it may be a book that we aren't that familiar with. We know the classic stories, Daniel and his friends in the fiery furnace, Daniel in the lion's den. But outside of those two stories, the book is, is relatively unfamiliar. And that's because it's a difficult book to understand. Old Testament scholars agree that Daniel is one of the most difficult books for preachers. One person has said this, and this is a great quote. They've said, why should preachers risk taking into their pulpits the time bombs that tick away in the book of Daniel? We're not going to say too much about the setting and background to the book tonight because those issues are simply too complicated. But let me summarize some of the key details that you'll need to remember. The book of Daniel was written by a man called Daniel in the 6th century BC. It records the events of his life and the visions that he saw from the time of exile in 605 BC until the third year of King Cyrus, which was 536 BC. Now, that's a, a period of, of roughly 70 years. Daniel was a young man from a good background who was exiled from Judah during the time of King Jehoiakim, and he lived in Babylon. Verses 1 and 2 of Daniel 1 tell us that. After the fall of the Babylonian Empire, Daniel served the Medo-Persian Empire that succeeded it. And all of that should be simple enough to remember. Daniel lived about 600 years before Jesus came to earth. This book records some of the stuff that happened to him and he lived during the Babylonian Empire and the Medo-Persian Empire. The key to all of that comes when we remember that he lived as a sojourner and as an exile because he was someone who trusted in the Lord. The message of Daniel is incredibly relevant to our time, not because Daniel was a great man and, and we need to follow his example and, and be more like him, but because this book will call us to believe in Daniel's God. And what we'll see is that the God who was with Daniel in exile is the same God who is with us two and a half thousand years later. Let, let, let's look at what happens to Daniel in chapter one. We're going to use three words that will help us. The message of the first chapter of this ticking time bomb of a book. In Daniel one, we see pressure, resolve, and faithfulness. Pressure, resolve, 
faithfulness. Let's think about that first word, pressure. God's people generally, and Daniel specifically, are under pressure in chapter 1. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, has besieged and ransacked Jerusalem, as well as taking some of the vessels of the house of God. Nebuchadnezzar has also taken some people. Uh, This deportation was the beginning of what came to be known as the Babylonian exile, which was the result of the Lord's judgment on his people. In Leviticus 26, 33 and 39, the Lord threatened his people with exile if they were unfaithful to the terms of the covenant established at Mount Sinai. And we know from Bible history that God's people were disobedient and eventually the threat of exile was carried out in stages. Jerusalem was eventually destroyed in 586 BC. Daniel is experiencing the first stage of God's judgment for the nation's sin, and he is under pressure. King Nebuchadnezzar knew how to run an empire. In verse 3, he commands one of his civil servants to bring the cream of the Jewish crop. That's so that they can be shaped and molded to become good Babylonian citizens. You can imagine Nebuchadnezzar on his throne thinking, if we can get our hands on them, we can relocate them, re-educate them, and rename them, and then through our brilliant program of, of subtle coercion, we can change the way these people think about the world. What we read of in verses 3 to 7 is simply the outworking of Nebuchadnezzar's grand plan for Babylon, his manifesto for change. A group of Jewish young people are taken away from all that was familiar to them. A change of location is often enough to change everything about a person. You know of young people who have gone to university as professing Christians, but who have who've drifted away from the faith. A change of location can be enough to change people. This group that are, that are swept away to Babylon are fast-tracked into civil service training. Notice some of the things that they experience. They're sent to the Ivy League of Babylon. Verse 4 tells us that they're going to learn the literature and language of the Chaldeans. They're going to learn, 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 and study like they've never studied before. Their diet is also changed. They're to eat the king's food, the best of the best. Most significantly, though, their names are changed. We're told about four friends, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The four friends were probably still only teenagers when all this happened. The the change of names is the most significant change for them. Daniel's name meant God is my judge. Hananiah's name meant the Lord is gracious. Mishael's name meant who is what God is. And Azariah meant the Lord is a helper. But they are Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and, and Azariah no longer. They become Belteshazzar, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Uh, Strangely, we probably know Daniel's friends by their Babylonian names better than we know them by their Jewish names. The the names that they're given are still God-honoring names, but honoring a different God, the the God or gods of the Babylonians. Think of how important your sense of yourself, uh, think of how important to your sense of yourself your name is, your name almost defines who you are, that these young men are being given a new identity. They're, they're under pressure, uh, under the pressure of a secular culture, uh, under peer pressure as well. Four friends are highlighted, but they were part of a wider deportation of the brightest and the best. How did all of the others get on? We're not told. 
but the four we are told about stood firm for the Lord. We're going to come to that in a moment. But it's helpful for us to see, isn't it, that, the, that God's people throughout the ages have faced pressure. J- Jesus promised as much, of course. In John 15, 18, he said, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. And the pressure is, is coming on us from all sides at the moment. Every powerful state seeks to educate people, especially children, to share its view of the world, its, its priorities, its, its definitions of right and wrong, and, and what is acceptable, acceptable and unacceptable. And that's happening at the moment. Well, what are we going to do as we come under pressure? Will we buckle under it? Will we become just like the world around us? Will we share the world's values? One of the reasons the church is in such a bad way at the moment is because it has, in some cases, become like the world. The values of the world are shaping the church. We would love it to be the other way around. We would love it to be that the values of the church are shaping the world, but we're under pressure. What are we going to do? How are we going to respond? How did Daniel respond? He and his friends were under pressure. Well, what chapter 1 reveals to us is that Daniel showed resolve. That's our second word. Pressure, then resolve. There was one part of the four-part program that Daniel resisted. He and his friends were unable to prevent themselves being relocated, moved from Judah to Babylon. They couldn't resist the fact that they were being re-educated. They had to listen to the lectures. They were powerless to resist being given new names. But they could and they did resist changing their diet. Look at verse 8. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. This seems like a really strange place to draw a line. But in the Old Testament, one of the notable features of God's people was that they followed rules about what they would and would not eat and drink. Dietary choice for God's people was an outworking of their deeply held convictions about what it meant to be what it meant to belong to God. Given these were young men and uh, and what they were doing, uh, given where these young men were and and what they were doing and what they were being called, the the last thread tying them to their roots and their faith was their food. And Daniel says, I can't do this. I can't tolerate this. I I won't go along with this. I have drawn a line here and I won't cross it. I am taking my stand. Now, the issue was not simply that the Babylonian food was not kosher, that is, prepared according to Jewish dietary laws, nor was the issue that the meat and wine had first been offered to Babylonian idols. The vegetables Daniel suggests that he should eat would have been offered to idols as well. If there had been something evil about the Babylonian food, then, then Daniel would have had to abstain permanently from royal meat and wine, and that doesn't seem to have been the case. But the key to understanding why the four men abstained from the royal food and wine is noticing that they chose to only eat things that grow naturally, grain and vegetables, and they chose to drink only naturally occurring water. The goal of this simple lifestyle was to be constantly reminded of their dependence on their creator for their food, not King Nebuchadnezzar. Under pressure in Babylon, Daniel and his friends resolved to be faithful to God within the system. Did you notice that? 
It's not that Daniel and his friends were troublemakers. They, they definitely weren't. They, they ask a chief official for permission for a personalized diet. The official is sympathetic to the request. But as you can see in verse 10, he, he's more worried about what will happen to him if he doesn't follow orders. Daniel beavers away though, and he's finally granted a 10-day test. At the end of the trial period, as you'll see in verse 15, Daniel and his friends are fitter than all the others in the program. The, the lesson is that they worked hard, they paid attention, they showed up on time, they were good students, but there was a point they would not go beyond. There was a resolve in them, and that caused them to take a stand and risk the consequences of the king's displeasure. We shouldn't underestimate the significance of their decision. Think of what the exiles must have been tempted to say. We're a long way from Jerusalem. Things are different now. Times have changed. The prevailing wind is is too strong for us to stand against. And, and, you know, resisting won't make any difference anyway. We're here in Babylon. And we, we need to make the best success of life here. And what we do in Babylon, those things that our people insisted on, well, they don't really matter that much. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah refused to take that approach. It's been said that a dead fish flows with the current. It takes a live fish to swim against the stream. The four friends have drawn their lines. They know where those lines are, and they will not cross them. Do we have the same resolve? The resolve that, that Daniel shows here doesn't just appear overnight. It comes as we live distinctively as Christians over a prolonged period of time. Daniel's story tells us that, that we shouldn't withdraw from the world and, and just hunker down into a little bubble. But at the same time, it also tells us that we shouldn't compromise. There are some things that we just cannot accept. And when it comes to it, we need to discuss them graciously, calmly, but we need to draw the line. Daniel picks his battle, doesn't he? We've noticed that he's under pressure on four fronts, relocated, re-educated, renamed, but he resists on the change to his diet. He could have pushed back on all four. He could have pushed back on none. He picks his battle. He draws a line in the sand and shows resolve. How are you doing when it comes to resolving to live distinctively in the world? Daniel is under pressure in Babylon, but he and his friends show great resolve. And they are a testimony to God's faithfulness. That's our final word this evening. Pressure, resolve, and faithfulness. The faithfulness of God is, is all over this chapter. As I said a moment ago, this book is not primarily about Daniel. No Bible book is primarily about a human character. The book of Daniel is about God. And in chapter one, we see God being faithful. It's not that God is faithful because of what Daniel does. God is faithful because that's who he is. His character is revealed to us in Daniel one. There's an important phrase that's repeated three times in this chapter. Uh, I wonder, did you notice it? Verse two, and the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his Nebuchadnezzar's hand. Verse nine, and God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And then verse 17, as for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. And the picture that we're supposed to see is that, is that God is in control. He's in control of, of geopolitical events, 
the Babylonian invasion and victory happened because God gave Nebuchadnezzar victory. God was responsible for the exile of his people. God was responsible for the destruction of the temple. Nebuchadnezzar would take the credit for it, but the Lord was the one who oversaw it. And God is in control of interpersonal interactions and individual outcomes. At the end of the program, at the end of the three years of training, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah are outstanding in their class. They're top of the pile. You can imagine that the civil servants, and maybe even Nebuchadnezzar himself, congratulated themselves and thought, what a program. Look at what we've done. These are exceptional young men, exceptional Babylonians. But what the king and his civil servants didn't know was that God was in control. God was in control of the four friends' relocation, their re-education, their renaming, and he granted, the, granted them resolve and grace as they took their stand. God took them into Babylon. God was with them in Babylon. And as we'll see in the weeks to come, God will use them in Babylon. That, that's really quite something when you think about it. Nebuchadnezzar wanted God out of the heart of these young leaders but God puts these young leaders into the heart of Babylon. It's amazing. And it's not that, it's not that God is faithful because, what, because of what Daniel does. God is faithful because that's who he is. His character is revealed to us in Daniel 1. We see his faithfulness and are reminded that the same faithful God who was with Daniel two and a half thousand years ago is with us tonight. Pressure, resolve, faithfulness. Daniel 1 in three words. As Daniel stands before the chief of the eunuchs and tells him that he is resolved that he will not defile himself with the king's food or, or, or with his wine, no matter what, we can of course see echoes of another man, a man living in a far more hostile land, standing before a far more powerful enemy and drawing his lines and refusing to move. If we find it hard to grasp how different life was for the Jewish exiles in Babylon, then we'll struggle to grasp how foreign it was for Jesus when he left the glory of heaven for our earth, when he stepped down into the difficulties of this broken world. He was willing to become one of us, to live in a world that was bent on resisting his father. He was willing to live under pressure, but he was not willing to disobey. At times he showed great resolve when he faced Satan in the wilderness, when he faced temptation that caused sweat, sweat to fall like drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane. And it's through Jesus that we ultimately see God's faithfulness to us. Verse 2, verse 9, verse 17. God gave, God gave, God gave. You turn to the New Testament, to John's Gospel, to chapter 3, verse 16. What do you read? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Do you know, the, the, the reality for most of us is that when we look at our lives, we, we find that we're not really like Daniel and his three friends. We're far more like the nameless multitude who were deported along with Daniel, who, who adopted foreign names, ate the king's food, and to all intensive purposes became like Babylonians. If the message of this book is simply be like Daniel and everything will be all right, 
we might as well stop the series now. But as we get to know Daniel, we'll find we're not Daniels. But the good news of the gospel is that, is that God is not simply faithful to those who are faithful to him. It's that a savior has come to deliver faithless and compromised people like you and me. Our salvation doesn't rest on our ability to remain undefiled by the world. Instead, it depends on the pure and undefiled offering that Jesus has provided in our place. Jesus came to this world. He endured far greater temptations and sufferings than Daniel did or than we ever will. Yet he remained entirely faithful and pure until the very end. Jesus has also returned from his time of exile and now sits at the Father's right hand in heaven. He has prepared our places there and his presence there already is the guarantee that one day we will be with him there as his people. The cross is the means by which God's faithfulness redeems the unfaithful. Jesus' resurrection and ascension reminds us of our inheritance in heaven. And we need to remind ourselves of this gospel. We need to fix our eyes on Jesus. We need to trust in him and ask him to give us a deep resolve so that we would live distinctively in the world. You will come under pressure, but God is faithful and gives grace to those who need it. What if you're not a Christian? What you should see is that all of, the things are, all of these things are moving in God's direction. He's in control of everything, and you should really be on his side. He controls the, the geopolitical events of our time. He controlled them in Daniel's time. He controls everything that happens in our lives. And he invites you to come to him tonight. And by trusting in Jesus, the same faithful God who was with Daniel two and a half thousand years ago can be with you as well. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word to us tonight. And we realize that as we read it, there are times when we live under pressure as sojourners and exiles in this world. We realize that at times our resolve is not that great, that we cave easily, that we're unfaithful often. We pray that you would forgive us for those times. And we pray that you would work on us a deep resolve to live distinctively for you in our world. We thank you that Daniel 1 tells us of your faithfulness, that you gave the grace required to Daniel in his time. And we thank you that you're a God who gives the same grace to us two and a half thousand years later. Help us to trust you, to rely on you, and to depend on you. And we pray for those who haven't yet trusted in the Savior, that they might see that you're the God who is in control and that all of history is moving to that great event when Jesus returns and calls his people home. Father, help us to live with resolve in a world in which we're under pressure and help us to remember your faithfulness. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.